Well, we're again back in 1 John chapter 2. We're going to continue our study in verses 3 to 6 today. And these verses that we've been considering over the past few weeks may not seem at first like they warrant as much time as we've been giving to them, but I hope you've come to realize that they really speak some profound truth to us. I began a couple of weeks ago by letting you know that John's main idea in verse 3 is really, in my opinion, his main idea of the whole book. I think his main point of the whole book is that to know Christ is to obey Christ. There's a direct connection between knowing Christ, having a relationship with Him, and obeying Christ. I think John wants us to walk away from reading this letter, and he wants us to know without a doubt that those who know Christ are those who obey Him, and that there is no authentic claim to knowing Him if you don't back it up with a life of obedience to Him. So let's go ahead and begin our time today by reading through these verses together. So 1 John 2, verses 3 to 6. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Two weeks ago, if you were here, I began to walk through how these four verses serve as a means to see how we can better understand what it means to know Christ. And we started by looking at John's explanation through these verses of what it means to know Christ. First of all, knowing Christ is an eternal relationship. We see that from verse 3 where John uses a grammatical tense to describe the fact that we who know Christ have come to know him in a very special and intimate sort of way. There are no higher degrees of knowledge that you will later attain. You now as a Christian know Christ in the same kind of way that you will know him for all eternity. Your knowledge will increase, but there's no new kind of knowledge that you'll get. So to have come to know him, John says, is to know him in an eternal way. Secondly, knowing Christ is knowing the truth. Verse 4, John talks about the truth being in us. And I hope you remember that the point there is not that we will know everything that there is possible to know in the universe. We don't get this mystic kind of omniscience when we know Christ. That's not what it means. What John means is that we have come to be able to have a right understanding of the truth that really matters. Things that pertain to the most urgent import to the soul. That's the stuff that you can know. The truth. We've come to know the truth of the word of God. His word in truth has been unleashed in power in our hearts. We could also say at this point that our appetites have been fully aligned to that which is truly satisfying. We have a hunger for that which is true. We have a taste for that which is true and right. Instead of loving the the so-called truths that the world would seek to sell to us, 
In the illustration I gave last week, we are like Christian and faithful walking through Vanity Fair, and we say, we want to buy the truth. That's what our appetite has grown desirous of, the truth. And then thirdly, we find that knowing Christ is loving God. That's from verse 5, where we read that God's love is perfected in us. And I argued that this means that our love for God has reached a sense of completeness, that we now are able to love God as he demands that he be loved. He commands very clearly in Scripture that all his creatures love him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. He commands that we love him and his kingdom over all else, such that, as Jesus said, we hate those whom we love the most on earth in comparison to our love for Christ and our love for God. And so it must be true that those who know Christ indeed are able to love him in that way. And so we see that knowing Christ is to love God supremely. And then the last aspect to knowing Christ that we looked at in detail last week is the fact that knowing Christ is abiding in Christ. It's remaining in Christ. In verse 6, John writes that we who know him are those who can authentically say, as he says there, that we abide in him. And the point that I hope I made clear is that abiding in Christ has everything to do with realizing that every single moment of our Christian experience is empowered by his grace. That's one reason why it was suggested that we sing the hymn we just sang, In Christ Alone. There is no moment in which we can handle life on our own. There is no temptation that you can overcome on your own. There is no righteous deed that you can accomplish in your own strength. None. Jesus himself makes this clear in John 15 and verse 5 where he says, Apart from me you can do nothing. So, knowing Christ is an eternal relationship. Knowing Christ is knowing the truth. Knowing Christ is loving God supremely. And knowing Christ is abiding in him. It is recognizing that all our strength comes from him. And so if you evaluate yourself, as we all ought, ask yourself the question, do I know Christ? Well, if it doesn't measure up to those four characteristics of what John says is true of those who know Christ, then there might be suspicion as to whether you truly know him. But there's another way that we can see if we actually know him. And it's a simpler kind of way to know if we know him. It's the test of evaluating whether or not we obey Christ. And that's what we come to next. Because this is the main connection that John is making in these verses. To know is to obey. So we're transitioning to talking about the obey part. Just as our enemy seeks to deceive sinners into thinking that they know Christ when they really don't, don't you think he would also want to deceive people into thinking that they are obeying when they really aren't? He would love to deceive us into thinking that we obey Christ when we really don't obey Christ. So 
We need clarity on what it actually means to obey Christ our God. And this is exactly what, God, what John gives us in these verses. So what we need to begin to do today is walk through the verses again, like a second pass through the verses, in order to pull from them a proper understanding, not of what it is to know Christ, we've done that, but now what it is to obey Christ. And just like there were four aspects to what it means to know Christ, there also will be four aspects to what it means to obey Christ. And if you're attuned to the bulletin and the notes that I gave you, you realize that there's only a number one there. So that indicates how far we're going to get today. <laughs> the first one. So we'll begin in considering the, the four aspects to what it means to obey Christ. Obviously, we'll just get through one of them today. And we'll begin in verse 3 by considering just a word that John uses to describe what I think is the very foundation of obedience, of true obedience. Look at verse 3 where we read this. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. And I think there's an important lesson that we learn about obeying Christ just from the fact that John uses that word keep to describe what we're to do with his commandments. You see, connecting the word keep to the idea of obedience is not usually what we do when we are talking about obedience. Just think about it. I'll give you an illustration. If you have ever parented young children, then you've been in a place where you have told your children that they need to obey what you tell them to do. And I doubt, I know I haven't, I doubt that you have ever, at least I don't think I have. You guys can maybe know better than I do, remember better than I can. I doubt you've ever used the expression that we see here in verse 3 to instruct your children what this looks like. You usually don't hear people say to their children, son, keep my commandments. I don't think I've ever said that. We might make rules for our children, but we don't ever say, please keep my rules. We say, just follow them, obey them. We don't usually use that verb keep. And if I could broaden my illustration to hopefully make it even more clear what I'm trying to bring out to your attention, not only do we not speak to our children in that way, but I can't think of any secular context at all in which we typically use that word keep in relationship to rules. If you get pulled over for speeding, which never happens... The officer is not going to say to you, sir, you failed to keep the speed limit. He'll just say you were going 50 and a 25 or whatever it is. I even tested my little theory. I, I googled the phrase, keep the law. And I only looked at the first five pages, 50 results, and every single one of them had to do with something Bible-related. When you search keep the law, everything comes back, something having to do with Scripture, the Mosaic law, something Jewish, something Christian. But then when I searched for the phrase obey the law, the first several pages all contained links that had to do with complying to the laws of your nation. There were none that had anything to do with the idea of obeying God's law. So I search for keep the law, it's everything having to do with Scripture. When I search obey the law, it's everything to do with the laws of our nation. I just found that interesting. I don't know if you do. 
And what it means is that the idea of keeping commandments, whatever that keeping means, we're going to get to that, it shows us that the idea of keeping rules as a means to obey them is a distinctively Christian idea. To keep commandments is something that is distinctively Christian. I believe only Christians keep rules so that they can obey them. I think it's something separate even than the obedience or, or baked into the obedience. For the rest of the world, when they think about rules, think about yourself maybe before you were converted or maybe even now in some contexts. When you think about rules, you're only concerned about obeying them if you want to, but you're not concerned about keeping them. That's people in the world. Oh, I will comply... But what I'm going to talk about, what it means to keep, that doesn't happen. They don't keep the laws of our country, even though we might obey them. There's a difference between the two things. And you might not think that there's a big difference, but I believe that Scripture indicates that there really is. I think that Scripture makes it very clear that a person can do what might be on the outside considered as obedience at a human level, but that it actually isn't obedience in the eyes of God. And we can look at example after example in the minor prophets of just this thing happening with the nation of Israel. I believe that the main difference between natural human obedience and the kind of obedience that actually truly pleases God, it has everything to do with whether or not a person is keeping these rules or commandments that they're seeking to obey. And as I explain what Scripture teaches us about this key difference, we'll come to see this to be the first aspect of what it means to obey Christ. So as I explain this idea of keep, here's the, the first aspect to what I think John is telling us about what it means to obey Christ. First of all, I think John is saying that obeying Christ begins in the heart. Obeying Christ, if you want to fill in the blank there, begins in the heart. And I think this is what the idea of keeping his commandments is really driving at. That obedience to Christ begins in the heart. If it begins anywhere else, it's not true obedience. True obedience to Christ cannot occur apart from this aspect being true. We simply cannot obey Christ if we do not begin obedience in our hearts. We must esteem in our hearts his commandments as more precious than anything on earth. We must consider his rules in our hearts as if they were worth more than money can buy. And if we do not have that underlying sense of value of his commandments in our hearts, then it is actually not possible for us to obey him. And I hope scripture will make that clear for you today. And the first thing I want for us to consider is simply the word that John uses here, which is translated in our Bibles, keep. Let's consider this word, keep, how it's used in the rest of the New Testament. It's a fairly common word. It's used to refer to a number of different things. Take, for example, what we read in Matthew 27, when Jesus was being crucified. I found this interesting when I was studying it. We find that the Roman soldiers, after Jesus was on the cross... The text in Matthew 27 says that the soldiers were keeping watch over Jesus after he was hung on the cross. Now, you might wonder why 
or the soldiers having to keep watch on someone who was nailed to pieces of wood. Well, remember, this Jesus is the man who had created quite a following in Galilee. He had thousands of people around him constantly during his ministry. We read about that in Luke 6 today. Remember that when he entered Jerusalem just a week before his crucifixion, the crowds heralded him as as king. So, if you're a Roman official and you're thinking through that context, knowing who you just put on a cross, knowing that he used to have a loyal following of thousands of people, knowing that he claimed to have the power to raise from the dead, and that a lot of people believed it, Knowing what they're going to do just a few days later when they seal his tomb with a big stone and put guards covering it. You're going to keep watch over him on the cross so that maybe there's not an uprising of people that come and try to take him off. If he had that kind of following before. So since they valued their power, the Romans, they valued their power and their ability to maintain control over all the people... Because they valued that, they made sure to keep this criminal in their minds on the cross by guarding him there. Him staying affixed to the cross was valuable to them, so they kept him there by use of these guards. Then there's what happened at the wedding feast in Cana, as recorded in John chapter 2. Remember, they ran out of wine, and Jesus turned water into the best wine that people had ever tasted before. And so when the master of the feast tasted that wine that Jesus made out of, out of water, he thought that they had let the guests drink the bad wine first, because we read the master of the feast say this in John 2.10, he said, everyone serves the good wine first. But when, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. The same word there. The idea was that he thought that they had kept hidden the wine that they valued most, the good stuff. They prized it, so they held on to it, and then, oh, we ran out. Okay, you can have the stuff that we really like. So they were guarding, hiding that which was valuable to them. And then just one further example of how this word is used in the New Testament. In Acts 16, Paul and Silas had been thrown in prison. And in verse 23, we read that the guard was commanded to keep them. The the jailer there in Philippi. And if you know the rest of the story, then you know that this command to keep the prisoners in jail was a very serious command because... What was the jailer about to do after the earthquake happened and Paul and Silas were going to leave? He was ready to fall on his sword and kill himself because he knew his rules. The prisoners were there for him to keep there. And if he lost them, he lost his life by the Roman authorities. And so he was about to kill himself. He was to keep them with his life. And what I believe is clear from a survey of the New Testament's use of the word is that the sense of keep in Scripture is not really the same way that we sometimes think of keeping things in our English language. This is not the sense that we think of when we ask a friend, oh, will you keep my place in line? Or when you try to keep track of your grocery list. 
When we use those kind of whimsical uh, uh, phrases with respect to the word keep, they're more trivial things that we want to keep when we use that word. But in the Bible, when we read of things of great value that are being kept, we find this word that we have translated keep. There is a sense in which even trivial things are held on to because you value them. Maybe you value not waiting in line a long time or you value that list you've curated. But those things can be lost and everything will be okay. But what we see with this word is it's referring to things that if they're lost, it's not okay. They have, there are great consequences if we lose the things that are trying to be kept or protected. The thing about the way that John's word for keep describes how we ought to hold on to something is that it really cannot be lost. The way the New Testament uses this idea of keeping always seems to be in a setting in which there are dire consequences if the thing is not kept. I'll walk through a few of them. Like I already said, a Roman soldier would lose his life if he lost his prisoner. And we see that word used many times in the book of Acts to refer to how the apostles were kept in prison. It refers to Paul and even Peter being kept in prison in the book of Acts. In John 12, we read about how Mary had kept a special ointment for Jesus. Do you remember how much it was worth? 300 denarii, which is a year's wages. She had kept, reserved, held on to a prized possession that was worth a year's amount of income to show her love for Jesus. And she would have been devastated if she lost it before she was able to pour it out on Christ. In 1 Timothy 5.22, Paul told Timothy to keep himself pure. What would be the consequence for Pastor Timothy to not keep himself pure? Loses ministry out of a position of leadership in the church. He would lose a lot if he lost his purity. And then Paul said in 2 Timothy 4.7 that he had fought the good fight, he had finished the race, and that he had kept the faith. And had he not fought a good fight, had he not finished the race, had he not kept the faith, if we don't fight the good faith, if we don't run the good race, if we don't keep the faith, then it's our soul that is lost. So keeping the faith is of utmost importance. And then perhaps the most significant time that we come across the word keep in the New Testament is in John 17. I've been in John 17 a number of times in the last few weeks. It's the prayer that Jesus makes to the Father on behalf of his people. And beginning in verse 11, Jesus prays this, John 17, 11, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. And none of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. That's the word keep in reference to the son and the Father 
keeping us in him. Jesus prays a prayer that will surely be answered when he prays that the Father would keep us in his name. And then Jesus indicated that his task had been to keep his followers in the Father's name. This is the most important kind of keeping in the universe. It's God keeping us saved. It's God keeping us in him. Because if God didn't keep us to himself, then what would happen? We would drift away. Christ The Father, they keep us. And so if the idea of keeping something in the New Testament conveys a very deep and meaningful kind of protection, if it means that a person is guarding or treasuring or protecting something of great value, then it must be true that keeping the commandments of Christ is no different. When John says that those who know Christ are those who keep his commandments, he's not merely saying that we observe his rules. Nor is he saying that we feel obligated to follow his regulations. And neither is he saying that we are disciplined enough to check all the right boxes on the list. Instead, John says that we are to keep his commandments in the sense that we find his commandments to be of such a high value that we guard them with our lives. In our hearts, we place his commandments at the place of highest value. We find his commandments of such worth that we give up everything of our own in order that we might follow them. We find his rules to be of such importance that we don't fail to remember them. I teach middle school students, and they often say, oh, I forgot, which is fine because my rules really don't matter. But the rules of Christ, they matter, and we may not forget them. We remember that which we value. And that's what John is saying by using the word keep. If we keep them, we value them, we remember them, and nothing in life rises above them in our hearts. So in surveying the word that John uses here, we can begin to see that obeying Christ has everything to do with our hearts. But we can also come to a better understanding of what it means to keep his commandments when we look at some important places in the Old Testament. We have to remember that it has always been this way for God's people. We have always been a people who value God's law, or at least that's what it's supposed to be. Let me give you three examples that provide three different ways of thinking how it is that keeping God's commandments begins in the heart. To keep God's commandment begins in the heart. Here are three examples. First, in Genesis chapter 6, We read how evil the whole earth was. I'll begin in verse 5. This is Genesis 6, beginning in verse 5. We read this. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. 
And here's the important part. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. So Noah was righteous. Noah was blameless in comparison to the others around him. And then most importantly, we read that Noah walked with God. This Old Testament example helps us think rightly about what it means to keep God's commandments. It means that you walk with God if you keep his commandments in your heart. But what does that really mean? What does it mean to walk with God? My dad is one of the most faithful Christian men I've ever met. And he often ends his text messages to me with a a three-letter acronym. I know what it means, but if you were to look at it, you'd be like, what? Just three random letters. He often types what he wants to type to me and then hits return a couple times. And then he just says WWG. Those three letters, WWG. And I've been raised to know that that three-letter expression means walk with God. He's still urging me to do that which I don't do well enough. And I appreciate him writing that to me far more than I convey to him. It's something that we all ought to keep in our minds constantly. It's important for us to desire to walk with God as Noah did. But at the same time, we have to be careful what it actually means that we walk with God because we're not actually physically walking with him. He's a spirit. So we need to understand this well. Walking with God is not a mystical experience in which you have an imaginary and invisible friend along with you. It's not that we walk with God in the sense that he's, our, he's actually our co-pilot. Walking with God isn't just having a sense that God is with you or around you or that he's aware of you. It's more than that. We have to be clear in understanding what this, what this picture brings to bear on our experience. We cannot see God, and if that's the case, then how is it that we can walk with him? How can we say that our habit is to be with him, that we hang around him, that we go where he goes, that we do what he does when he's a spirit and we're flesh and blood? Well, I believe the answer is quite simple. You walk with God when you walk with his commandments. When you make a daily And a habitual practice of doing what he says. When you do that, you are walking with him. He has revealed himself to you in his word. And so when you walk with his word, you are walking with him. Jeremiah said it this way to the nation of Israel in his day. He said, but this command I gave them, obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people. And walk in all the way that I command you. Walk in all the way that I command you, that it may be well with you. We walk with God when we walk in the way that he has commanded us. And as it was true with with Noah, the same is true of the one who can say that God is their God today. That person can have said of them that they walk with God. We can have it be true of us that we walk with God When we indeed walk with or keep his commandments. Because to walk with God is to keep his commandments. And that's a matter of the heart. To have as your desire, your daily habitual practice, that you are constantly and continually continually with God's commandments. 
You don't just do that as a discipline of your mind or your hands. You do that as a matter of your heart. So that's the first example from Noah. Then there's Job. In Job 1.1, we read this. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Feared God and turned away from evil. Here again, we find a servant of God who's blameless. He's upright. He's righteous. And then we're given a picture of how it was that God's servant could be called such. Noah walked with God, but here we read of a different way to think about the quality of God's servant. Whereas Noah walked with God, we read here that Job feared God and turned away from evil. Now we could take an entire sermon series and talk about fearing the Lord. It's all over scripture. But in order to make clear the point for today about keeping God's commandments, I want for us just to realize that these two ideas really are explicitly linked together. You cannot keep God's commandments if you do not fear him as the giver of the commandments. Keeping them and fearing the giver are linked together necessarily. If you do not have a reverent respect for God as your master, if you do not submit to his authority in the way that a subject would submit to his king, if you do not see him as the one who sustains your life and therefore as the one who deserves your service, if you don't view God that way, then you cannot keep his commandments. You might fall in line with them from time to time, but if you don't fear him, you don't truly obey him. You don't truly keep his commandments. And I could argue a bunch of theological reasons why, philosophical reasons why that's the case. But I think it's best to turn to the reasoning of the wisest person who ever lived at this point. Of course, that's Solomon. Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 12, 13. He said, the end of the matter, all has been heard. This is the end of his book of Ecclesiastes, his book on his musings about life. And he said, here's the end of it. I've thought about everything that there is to think about in life, and these are my final words. And then he says this. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. He boils life down to two things that essentially are the same thing. Fear God, keep his commandments. There they are explicitly linked together. The whole duty or the whole purpose of man. You want to be whole? You want to be satisfied essentially is what he's saying? Then you fear God so that you can keep his commandments. And while we're talking about Solomon, listen to what he wrote in Proverbs 2 verses 1 to 5 about our need to keep God's commandments. He says, My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. If you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. 
And notice all the vivid words that Solomon uses there to describe how his son was supposed to receive his instruction, which really is the same as us receiving God's instruction. This is to be our posture for how we are to receive God's commandments. He said that we should treasure up God's commands. He said that we should incline our heart to understanding. He said that we should call out and raise our voice so to understand them. It's the cry of desperation. He said that we should seek his commandments like we would seek for silver. And that we should search for his commandments the way we search for hidden treasure. These are directives that imply that a person's heart is dead set on cultivating a right fear of God. If you don't have your heart set upon finding the fear of God like that, then you're not going to be able to keep his commandments. Because fearing him is the foundation of truly obeying him. Solomon says, only then, only when you incline yourself in that way, will you understand the fear of God and find a knowledge of him. And so I hope you can see how this is so very much similar to what John wrote in his letter about keeping the commandments of our Lord. If keeping is the New Testament idea of guarding or of protecting something, then the idea of fearing is the underlying value that you place on that which you guard. If you fear it being taken away, if you fear the one who's given it to you, then you value it and you guard it and you protect it. So obeying Christ begins in our heart with fearing him, with fearing God. If you fear him as you should, then you will keep his commandments. So we're to keep his commandments by walking with him. And we're to keep his commandments by fearing him. All these as matters of the heart. And then thirdly, our third example is to show us one more vivid way to think about what it means to keep God's commandments. And we see it in Deuteronomy chapter 6. If you don't mind turning there. Deuteronomy chapter 6. And in verses 4 to 9 of this passage in Deuteronomy 6, we learn about the other way to think about what it means to keep God's commandments from the heart. For Noah, it meant that he walked with God. And for Job, it meant that he feared God. And here for the nation of Israel, it means simply that they love God. If you're a person who keeps his commandments, you walk with him, you fear him. And here from Deuteronomy 6, we learn that it means that you love him. Look at these great verses together. I'll read verses 4 to 9. We read this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. You see, the command to love God is central to the idea of obeying. It's right there at the beginning of the passage. We cannot fail to connect the love command with the keep command. If we love God, then we will keep his commandments. And notice how Moses puts it so clearly in verse 6. He says, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. 
What does it mean for something to be on your heart? The best illustration I could think of, we just finished the Christmas season, and how is it that you know what is on your children's hearts around that time of year? Dad, can I get a fill-in-the-blank for Christmas? How many days until Christmas? How many presents am I going to get? The child has presents and candy and light on their mind, on their heart around Christmas time. And it's evidenced by the fact that it's all they think about. It's all they talk about. It's what they're desiring most. In other words, to have something on your heart means that it is what you have the greatest affection for. As you're ranking your loves, whatever's on top at the moment... That's what's on your heart. Or that's who's on your heart. And what it always ought to be for us is God and his commandments that is on top of our hearts in that sense. God told Israel that there should be nothing that they desire more than his commandments. And the same is true for us. There is nothing that we should desire more than obeying God. And I hope you can see the clear connection that is coming to light now, the connection between loving and obeying, matter of the heart and obeying. If it's God whom we love most, then it is God's commandments that we will love most. And this is because God's commandments are the clearest way that we can be like him and that we can honor him. Think about it. If God is your supreme affection and you think he is the most beautiful, the most wonderful, the most pure, the most lovely thing in all the universe, then you want him and you want to be like him. And he gave you a set of rules that basically say, here's how you can be like me. So what, sh- what should be your response to those rules? If this is the way to be like the thing that I think is the most wonderful thing in the universe then sign me up for these rules. I love them because they get me to be like what I want, which is like God. That's how we ought to feel about the commandments of our Lord because they're the vehicle by which we get to be like the one we love. That's what it should be. I think we tend to disconnect love from obedience in our minds all too often. We tend to view obedience as something that is devoid of love. It's something we just have to do, even though we don't really want to do it. If you remember what it's like to be a child, I know I do. When your parent gave you the rule that you didn't like, you might have obeyed on the outside, but on the inside, you didn't do it with love. Well, if that happened to you, then guess what? You didn't obey because obedience is primarily an issue of the heart. Let me be very practical and specific and personal even here at this point. Yesterday, for part of the day, I was working on my taxes. And there were some things that I had to look up and add up, and they were not financially favorable in my opinion. And I must confess that my heart was not filled with great love for the Internal Revenue Service and for whichever legislator decided to make 
certain rules that apply to me in a way that I don't think is fair. But as a Christian, I have to realize that I'm not actually obeying God in submitting to the governing authorities if that gloomy and cloudy spirit were to continually hang over me concerning my taxes. This is really important for us to understand that obedience to God always involves our hearts being filled with love for him as the motivation for our obedience. If you, if you obey, but you don't have as the root motivation of your obedience love for God, then whatever you think you're doing that is obeying actually isn't obeying. In other words... The deciding factor in obedience is not whether or not you do this or that. Our actions aren't the deciding factor in whether you've obeyed or not. The thing which determines whether or not you've obeyed is if you love God as the giver of the commandment. And therefore, if you love his commandment and then follow through with it. It begins with a heart of love to the one who gave the commandment. And back to my practical example with respect to my taxes, I'm supposed to love to pay them, whatever it is that they add up to be. And this is not because I love the rules of the IRS or of the president or of the Senate. I'm supposed to love to pay them because I love God's rules. And because when I obey the IRS, I'm actually obeying God. God commands that we render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. God commands that we honor the emperor as supreme. God commands that we submit to every governing authority. So therefore, if I am going to keep those commandments, guard them, treasure them. It means I'm going to treasure them and love them in my heart before I act on them. And the reason is because I love the God who gave those commandments to me. So keeping God's commandments is the same as loving God, just as it is the same as fearing God, and as it is the same as walking with God. And just in case these pictures have not clearly gelled in your mind as being helpful ways to think about how you are to keep his commandments, listen to how all three of these ideas are converged together in one verse in Deuteronomy 10 and verse 12, where it reads this, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? And we're going to see all three of those things in what God requires. But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him. To serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. In the same breath, we read that God's requirement is fearing him, walking in his ways, loving him, and serving him, which is obeying him. So essentially, obedience equals fear him, walk with him, love him. And if you don't have those three things as the foundation of your obedience, then you don't simply have obedience. So to keep his commandments, it involves fearing God, walking with God, and loving. So from what we looked at in the New Testament, first of all this morning, we learned that keeping the commandment of God means that we are to guard his commandments. 
We protect them because we value them highly in our hearts. And then from what we see in the examples in the Old Testament, we learn that keeping the commandments of God means that we are to walk with God, that we are to fear God, and we are to love him with all that we are. And only when those things are true of us are we truly keeping his commandments. Only when we start obedience from the heart do we actually obey Christ. Father, what we've just learned is so hard for us to practice because our hearts are just marbled with sin and selfishness and love for self and love for comfort and love for ease. Father, it's easy to get caught up with the external, with just complying and looking like we're doing the right thing. But then when the right thing is so hard to do, we grumble and complain. And it's because we've not cultivated, as we should, a heart that loves you as the giver of the commandments. Help us, Father, to know that the important matter of obedience is the matter of our hearts. We must be a people who walk with you by walking with your commandments, by having them ever before us. We must be a people who fears you. We reverence and respect you as the giver, as the creator, as our master. And we also must love you. We must have our heart fully set, our affections fully set on you supremely so that we love whatever it is that comes from your mouth that we read in your word. Help us to this end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.